0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm here with Michael Griesbach, the author of The Innocent Killer, A True Story of a Wrongful Conviction and Its Astonishing Aftermath. His book chronicles the wrongful conviction of Stephen Avery in a 1985 assault, and then later, Stephen Avery's conviction in a 2005 murder. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm glad to be here, Lee. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in the Stephen Avery cases and how you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, of course, the Stephen Avery case starts in 1985 when he was accused and later wrongly convicted of this brutal attack on a Lake Michigan Beach, not far from where I live actually, here in Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin, kind of a smaller community, a city of about 50,000 people on the shores of Lake Michigan in northeastern Wisconsin. I was not a prosecutor in 1985 when the original attack occurred. I first got here in 1991. I'm from the city of Milwaukee originally, And after we moved here, uh, the Stephen Avery case didn't mean anything to me or to many people, frankly. Uh, Years later, in 2003, so this would be 18 years into Stephen Avery's sentencing, the DNA test that the Wisconsin Innocence Project had uh been able to achieve showed essentially that Stephen Avery did not do the prior crime and that uh, another fellow by the name of Gregory Allen, who actually made Stephen Avery look less dangerous, frankly, this Gregory Allen uh, fellow, that he was the real assailant. And that's really the part where I came into the case. I was sort of assigned to make sure on the wrongful conviction that the DNA meant what it appeared to mean, because if you think about it, Stephen Avery had been convicted by a jury of his peers, 12 people. And then two courts of appeal had affirmed his conviction throughout those years. And really on the strength of the evidence, which turned out to be one final hair that was left with enough DNA evidence, on the strength of that to release Stephen Avery, we really wanted to make absolutely sure, first of all, that the evidence meant what it seemed to mean, that the DNA that had come back to this known sex offender named Gregory Allen was conclusive and that there was no question that Stephen Avery did not do the first crime. And it's a bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to get to the heart of it here um, when When going through the file, the Stephen Avery file, after getting that call and the transcripts from the jury trial, um, I actually took them home with me because I didn't, you know, nobody wanted him in there in prison any longer than he had been if he didn't do it. So uh, I poured through them all night, and it became very clear to me really quickly that not only did Stephen Avery not commit that first crime, but that it's likely that the sheriff and the district attorney Uh, And maybe one or two other officers knew or came to know very early on, within a couple days of arresting Mr. Avery, that he was innocent. Uh, But they proceeded anyhow. So that was sort of my first involvement with with the Avery case.
0: Let's get into what you had to do next. As a prosecutor who has realized that there has been a miscarriage of justice and that this miscarriage of justice does not seem to be accidental, what was it like to go back to work in this small community of lawyers and say, I think that this was intentional.
1: Well, fortunately, um, at least as to the main players, um, the district attorney, former district attorney, and the former sheriff, they were gone. The former sheriff had retired, and the former DA moved off uh, actually to a law firm in Madison years earlier. But, um, it was still, you know, it's hard to describe the feeling when you personally learn. And I had received information, some really troubling information about what your predecessors did that, you know, I, I firmly believe is very rarely done, um, by prosecutors. Let's hope so, and, and I do believe it. Um, but, these guys knew, or at least uh, it, it certainly felt like, and the evidence suggests to me and to many others, that they were putting an innocent person in prison. So. I immediately, and uh, another attorney in our office, immediately uh, felt we needed to have this looked at by someone else. So we took it to the Wisconsin Attorney General, uh, who did an independent review of the case. But personally, it was, it was. I mean, I remember being on the telephone with the prior district attorney at the request of the trial court judge uh, to let him know before this hit the media storm that, you know what, um, it wasn't Stephen Avery, the guy you prosecuted. And I put this in my first book, but his reaction was basically, um, well, is there anything on the other guy, on Allen in the Avery file? And I took that to mean that he was trying to cover his tracks. And it it was really, really troubling. I guess that's, that's the only way I can describe it.
0: Had you brought up Allen um, in your conversation previously, or did he bring up Allen himself?
1: Um, I had uh, I had brought up and said that the DNA came back to Gregory Allen, but uh, just to back up a second, I had also seen a criminal complaint in the Avery file the really box of evidence uh, and documents from the first case because it went to a week long trial. Um, I had found in there actually while I'm speaking with the crime lab um, person um, analyst about the DNA. A criminal complaint signed by the very same district attorney to, uh, who handled it at the time against Gregory Allen, and it was for an offense not unlike uh, the case with which Mr. Avery was wrongly convicted, where Gregory Allen lunged at a woman on the same section, basically, of the beach. Uh, where he later attacked uh, the victim, Penny Bernson, of the wrongful conviction case. So here the DA was with that in the file, and pretty clear uh, evidence that he thought uh, it was Allen himself, in addition to all kinds of other evidence that's in the book that would be tough to go through, but um, really damning evidence, uh, and here he was basically covering his tracks with me on the phone.
0: The experience of finding this out and going through the steps to um, achieve Stephen Avery's release and everything that went on in the state of Wisconsin to try and address this as a larger issue, that in itself could have made a book. Did you consider at that point writing about your experiences? You know,
1: um, I didn't not not immediately. um, it has always been the wrongful conviction I've been interested in, but um and i I you know, spent a lot of time on it and wrote a little bit about wrongful convictions. But the idea of writing an entire book uh, did not cross my mind then. I'm kind of surprised it ever did to tell you the truth, given the undertaking,
0: so um the people who have watched making a murderer will already know this but what was the next thing that happened that changed this from i hate to say garden variety wrongful conviction because each of them has their own nuances but what brought this onto a different level for you
1: well exactly it was it was the murder it was uh it was a very specific date and specific time for me anyhow it was uh It was uh November sixth of uh two thousand five when I got a call to go out to the Avery's salvage yard uh I was the on call district district attorney that day, and a woman by the name of Teresa Halbach, who had gone missing uh a week earlier um actually on Halloween day of two thousand five um her vehicle her rav4 was found in Mr Avery's uh, uh it's a family salvage yard essentially a rural hilly uh grass grown salvage yard with uh, and actually a pretty successful business at that time um of you know hundreds if not thousands of vehicles in these rolling hills uh outside of the city and uh, Teresa's vehicle was found there and later um, uh, her remains were found there and indeed uh, she was murdered uh, and Stephen Avery became uh, the number one suspect uh, for Teresa's murder and then later uh, one of two persons charged uh, with her brutal uh, slaying assault and and, and murder.
0: So were you involved with the prosecution of that case at all?
1: I was not. we determined fairly early on that uh there was a conflict of interest um the county uh I'm not a county employee I'm a state employee but still um was being sued uh by Stephen Avery and his lawyers in a in a, a 36 million dollar wrongful conviction lawsuit so at that point, uh, you know, the former district attorney in the office where I still uh work today, um and worked then, uh, was personally named in the lawsuit as was the former sheriff. So there was a pretty clear cut conflict of interest. Uh, as soon as Teresa's remains were found um the salvage yard that day in a in a fire pit essentially outside mister avery's house it turned into a homicide investigation officially as opposed to a missing person investigation and we, that is the district attorney's office, uh, not necessarily the, the sheriff's department, but the district attorney's office immediately and completely uh, withdrew from any further participation in the case. I did obtain information for search warrants that day prior to the findings of uh, of the evidence that I've described. And I'll never forget the day, you know, itself when people watched the the documentary, they'll hear a little bit about that. I just described it in my book as well. But it was it was just a surreal kind of day at the salvage yard as dozens of police and searched and media helicopters uh, buzzing around and weather uh, turning from a sunny, clear Wisconsin fall day, a beautiful day actually, but to a driving cold wind-driven rain by the end of the night. So it was a very eerie, bizarre, surreal day in a very dark, dark setting uh, with police dogs uh, barking, as everyone believes, uh, sadly, that it's very likely that Teresa's body would be found somewhere on the premises.
0: Now, your book was published in 2014, and this very sad case was happening in 2005. Were you aware that there were documentary filmmakers Interested in this case and following and creating a piece like this? And did you have any idea that you know it would become what it did, which was a a Netflix show, which became a real blockbuster and something that people talk about around you know around the water cooler.
1: I was aware uh, that the documentarians were, were on a project to, to make this into a film if, if uh, they found a distributor. In fact, I agreed to be interviewed with them um, I, uh, briefly on episode one. I appeared about the wrong, speaking about the wrongful conviction. Uh, in fact, I agreed to be interviewed with them um, briefly and appeared in the first episode on the wrongful conviction uh, portion of the story. So I knew them, I met them. I don't think they even had an idea that, in fact, I don't even know if Netflix was around back then. It was 10 years ago. Or if it was, it wasn't what it is today. And I actually thought that their project reached a dead end because I hadn't heard from them for so long. But about uh, three or four months before the documentary aired, I I received a call from uh, the documentarians, Laura and Moira, uh, who who created the, the documentary. And they told me they had received a distributor and that it would, be, uh, it would be shown in December. I did not know it was Netflix. And I don't think anybody had any idea of the scope that this turned into this really international, internationally watched and, and discussed uh, phenomenon, uh, making a murder.
0: Now, your book, The Innocent Killer, actually was published before uh, you knew the documentary was going to come out then. Is that correct?
1: Was the American Bar Association published it in 2014, and I had self-published it actually under a different title two years earlier than that. So, uh, and I had started working on it, you know, three years prior to that. But yeah, I had no idea the documentary was coming out uh, until well after I had uh, published uh, the book.
0: So, Mike, in reading *The Innocent Killer*, it seems pretty clear that although you are sure that. Avery was wrongfully convicted of this first crime that he was imprisoned for, you do believe that he committed the murder that he's now serving time for. After watching Making a Murderer, many people seem to now feel that it is a second wrongful conviction and that there is a larger conspiracy. What has it been like for you and for your coworkers in Manitowoc to be facing that?
1: You know, Lee, it is just a unbelievably strange um, experience to be sort of at the epicenter of this. But it's strange and it's also troubling at the same time because, I mean, there there have been bomb threats in our sheriff's department. Rich is right next to the courthouse. They're, they're nonsense, I'm sure, but some of them had some fairly sophisticated methods of being called in, uh, kind of rerouted from one person to the next. And And then there has been this entire social media movement of people who uh, understandably, really, if all you watch is making a murder, and if that's your only base of knowledge for the Avery case, uh, who understandably are absolutely convinced that Stephen Avery has once again been wrongly convicted, that uh, law enforcement corruption has struck again in Manitowoc, um, that police have planted evidence, and that he and his accomplice, his uh, 16-year-old, then 16-year-old nephew, Brendan Dassey, are innocent and that they've been put in prison for 10 years now wrongly. So, you know, you have these people very, very convinced of this. So the reaction to anybody who disagrees has been anger, venom, really, from some of them, directed at me and anyone else in law enforcement they took over my own facebook page uh, the innocent killer and have uh, used it to sort of spin different conspiracy theories and to attack me uh, personally in a in a real kind of angry way. Um, about as angry as you can get, to be truthful. And they even managed to sabotage uh, my book the, that the that the American Bar Association published, uh, The Innocent Killer. There was a campaign essentially to drive the rankings down um, and uh, to get negative reviews. Uh, so it went from a four-star book for 18 months since it had been out to a two-star book with People basically um, saying it was full of lies, and that it wasn't worth your money, and that it's terrible, and that I'm a tool of the state, et cetera. So, it's been a very strange experience.
0: What do you think the major elements um, of the case that could have perhaps shown people why you believe that he is guilty of this crime? Um, what do you think those elements would be that were left out of the documentary?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of them. You know, I I could list a few, and it's kind of a a combination of things that were left out or things that were modified or edited to give a different impression. I I guess one good example, uh, quickly, is one of Stephen Avery's prior crimes uh, was that he had rammed his pickup truck into the vehicle of a woman who was driving by his residence, and then after she lost control, he approached her uh, at gunpoint um, and uh, told her to get into his car. Now, as making a murder would have it, that was he did that only because she had been spreading rumors about him and his family, and perhaps he should have handled it differently, but that's what he did, sort of minimized it. In fact, what that was about is Stephen Avery had been uh, essentially stalking, this woman who is a neighbor down the street on this rural road with a pair of binoculars watching her as she got into her vehicle every morning. As she drove past his residence for weeks and even uh, months, she would watch, he would watch her, and he occasionally even sexually gratified himself, I guess is the way to say it, as she drove by. And on that particular day, he Clearly wanted to have her go into his car, and he was. We believe there's no question he was going to assault her. Uh, only left her because she pointed out her infant son was in the back seat of the car, and it was a cold day, and, and the child would have would have perhaps uh, died in in the cold. So this was not uh, a nice guy, um, and that's one example of how, how they portrayed this. And then, of course, there was a great deal of evidence left out uh, that would have suggested or does suggest that Stephen Avery was guilty of the murder. Um, They never brought up, for instance, uh, and if they did bring it up, they barely brought it up, that there was a bullet found in the garage of Stephen Avery with Teresa Hubbach, the victim's DNA on it. Uh, They hinted that that was actually, they suggested that was also found by Manitowoc police, when in fact it wasn't, Um, and they put on a DNA uh, analyst that uh, had to admit that the test had some troubles. So they only took certain portions of the testimony, and they highlighted those portions. Um, And like I said, if all you saw was making a murderer... Um, you would come away from it thinking that another terrible injustice uh, was done.
0: Was there anything that watching Making a Murderer did enlighten you about or change your mind about any aspect of the case?
1: You know, there was. um, The confession of Brendan Dassey, uh, the young accomplice in particular, I uh, did not watch the Stephen Avery trial had my own cases to deal with, and uh, I wasn't prosecuting it. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't an expert, frankly, on the Stephen Avery case, much less the Dassey case. And they showed, and it's been uh, troubling to a lot of people, and I think reasonably troubling, uh, The some of the interrogation methods that the police used uh, when they interviewed this young uh, 16-year-old at the time, developmentally delayed, I guess is the best way you'd say it, uh, young man. Um, And there was a lot of manipulation um, and a lot of leading, uh, and it went on for hours. And that was concerning to a lot of people as to whether that, and me as well, as to whether that crossed the line. Now, the police there were doing what they're allowed to do. It's called the read technique of interrogation, police all over the country use it. Um, And it's thought that trickery or or, uh, lies even, uh, manipulation of defendants is fair game for police uh, to ferret out the truth. The problem is a lot of people aren't so sure that it's to ferret out the truth, but it's just to elicit uh, what the police believe they already know, uh, which is the person is guilty. And especially when it's um, a young, intellectually and emotionally challenged uh, person like Brenda Dassey, I think it's troubling. And that case right now is in the federal court, Eastern District Milwaukee, for a decision on that very issue, uh, whether this confession was coercive.
0: So after all of the sort of furor that surrounded the innocent killer making a murderer, do you think that this is the last time you'll write on the Stephen Avery case, or do you have more material coming up?
1: I do have another book uh, coming up. There are times when I wish uh, I was done with the Avery case, but I, uh, I'm i obsessed with it, I'll be honest. And uh, Kensington Books has uh, recognized that obsession, and they've agreed to publish a book. So I am working on now... Uh, a book entitled Indefensible, uh, The Missing Truth About Stephen Avery, Teresa Halbach, and Making a Murderer. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, thing to revisit after all these years.
0: And finally, just talking about wrongful convictions in general, um, in the book you mentioned how after the Halbach case ended, you saw a lot of anger in the community towards why did you fight to release this person who was unjustly convicted? Wouldn't it have been better if he still stayed in jail? Even people claiming that, you know, the fact that he'd been cleared by DNA and it pointed to someone else didn't matter. How would you respond to those critics? Why is exonerating and uncovering wrongful convictions so important?
1: You know, there's an old saying that uh, it's better to let 100 guilty go free than to convict one who is innocent. And the Avery case really puts that whole claim or that whole saying to the test, um, because he was a dangerous person before. But I guess what I tell those people is, you know, look at what happened because of the wrongful conviction. Um, There was a woman who was assaulted, brutally raped after the real assailant, Gregory Allen, was left free to roam the streets. He committed this crime 10 years after he escaped prosecution for the for the other attack. And, of course, other things happen. You know, it's very difficult for the victim to kind of go through the ups and downs of whether she, uh, whether the correct assailant was behind bars. And there's a real question about whether Teresa Halbach would have been killed had the wrongful conviction not occurred. Now, only Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are responsible for that. Uh, that murder. There's no question about that. But let's face it, Stephen Avery wouldn't have been at that place at that time had he not been wrongly convicted. Um, he could have moved on. He could have been in prison for something else. Who knows? But the way one thing leads to another in life, he would not have been there at that time. So it's a it's a very difficult case. I get why people feel that way, but there's no question. Um, wrongful convictions are a huge problem
0: you 're coming at this as a prosecutor, but do you find common ground with defense attorneys on this these sorts of issues with wrongful convictions
1: i do in fact i even uh, prior to the the release of making a murder prior to anybody even knowing about it, um, I had uh, moderated panel discussions uh, legal education panel discussions with uh, Dean Strang, one of um, Stevens' attorneys in the murder case and both of his attorneys in the wrongful conviction case, Walt Kelly and Steve Glenn, speaking about wrongful convictions. Um, And all three of us, incidentally, are in the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Um, And I have focused on the ones caused by police and or prosecutor misconduct, um, because that's what the first Avery case was about. So, I, you know, I do find myself in neither camp, as it were. You know, I'm a prosecutor and have been for 25-plus years, but I I don't think we should look at it that way. I think both sides are are obviously extremely important, as is indicated by the fact that uh, it's only by the efforts of defense attorneys and Innocence Projects. that the 350 and growing uh, number of wrongful convictions in this country uh, have been uncovered.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us, for talking about your book, The Innocent Killer, and uh, we hope to hear more from you when that new book comes out.
1: Oh, it was great talking with you, Lee. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you again, Michael, for joining us, and thanks to our listeners. This has been the Modern Law Library, and I'm your host, Lee Rawls.